and welcome to the Ongoing Dairy Dialogue podcast, which has now reached number 157. Officially, 157 would be the start of the fourth year, as 52 times 3 is 156. But of course, we don't do a podcast over the Christmas period, and occasionally other times too, so we're already well into four years. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and things don't show any signs of settling down, which is probably a whole lot better than scrambling for news. I remember at a newspaper after Christmas when you've done the year in review, you've done the looking forward to the year ahead, and there's absolutely nothing happening. It's not a good feeling editing a newspaper with nothing to put in it. So more is better. I've got so many interviews on the go at the moment it's hard to keep it all straight, plus getting ready for the webinar which is coming up next week, and which you can register for now on DairyReporter.com. Also tomorrow I'm heading out to do an article on a farm that's not too far away from here, but fortunately it is far enough away from Glasgow that the roads shouldn't be snarled up because of COP26. Seems ironic that there's world leaders in limos and motorcades talking about helping the planet while having big banquets. Anyway, just to say, it's a busy week. It was also Halloween this weekend, and on social media there were lots of posts from residents of the village warning people they weren't participating in Halloween, so not to go looking for candy. Lots of savings as well, with so many people turning off anything in their house that might shed some light to show that they're home. Although cars in the driveway is usually a dead giveaway. Anyway, there was enough to go around, and some nicely decorated houses as well. Speaking of trying to save the planet, I bought a pair of new walking shoes this week, and I appreciate that my feet are very big, but the box they came in could have held four more boxes. It was massive. I guess they could have just sealed the shoe box and slapped a label on that, but no. Anyway, I'm sure they have a good reason. Okay, so let's get on with this week's podcast, and this time we have interviews with Rick Pedersen, President of Ornua Ingredients North America, and Dennis Lynn, Chairman of Bob's. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. So now let's get to the news you may have missed over the past seven days. A new report in the UK says dairy prices must go up due to rampant inflation. Illy published its financials for the first three quarters of the year, and it saw net profit growth exceed 30%. Also, Danone, UK and Ireland has a new president. The UK dairy roadmap was unveiled, revealing its net zero climate ambition. Maxim Foods published its global dairy commodity update for November, and supply chain issues are starting to adversely affect UK food businesses. Milkybator kicked off its first edition with four startups. Indian packaging company Uflex is showcasing its new foil stamping for beverage cartons, and Stonyfield Organic is set to use renewable energy in its New Hampshire plant by the end of 2022. Dairy Fair has rebranded as Rubik's Foods, Illy has become the biggest shareholder in Osnutria, and in Belgium, Milkobel is launching a CO2-neutral cheese. We had our October roundup of new products in the dairy aisles. Pomigiano Reggiano is auctioning a 21-year-old cheese wheel for charity at the World Cheese Awards, which is taking place this week, and you can read all of these and more and register for next week's webinar on Delivering Through Dairy at DairyReporter.com. 
Now it's time for our first interview. Irish dairy cooperative Ornua has completed the acquisition of U.S. cheese ingredients business Whitehall Specialties from Mason Wells, a private equity firm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. To tell us about the deal and what it means for Ornua is Rick Pedersen, president of Ornua Ingredients North America. Okay, so I guess the first and obvious question is what the rationale was for the purchase of WSI. Yeah, well, I think I'm, I'm really excited to share with you today that, that this is an exciting growth story, and that's really at the core of why we chose to purchase Whitehall Specialties. When we look at the addition of Whitehall Specialties, we, we believe we created an unrivaled business in our sector of the cheese industry. Our growth has been substantial. So the ingredients business North America would have doubled our business in the last five years. With the addition of Whitehall, we double it again. So it's very much a growth story. Whitehall brings with it a very complementary business to ours. So if we look at where we're strong versus where they're strong, they fit together very well. And that's why we believe we've created something very unique and unrivaled in our space. So it brings to us different types of cheeses, different formats of cheeses, technical capabilities, capacity to continue to grow, and it strengthens our, our business continuity. I think there's one thing we learned through COVID is that the supply chains could be fragile. And so by adding four additional manufacturing sites to now getting us to six, it provides us the opportunity that should we have an unfortunate incident, we can continue to support our customers and the industry. So it really sets us up for continued growth. And that's really at the core why we chose to make the purchase of Whitehall. Is some of that because of the, um, you mentioned how fragile things have become with pandemics and now shortages and all kinds of things. Is that is a lot of that because of the different geographies? Is that part of the reasoning behind that? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is the supply chain itself, whether that's a global supply chain or a domestic supply chain. I think everyone across the globe is feeling that stress and strain of the supply chain. Second to that and dovetailing into that is really labor. The labor pool and labor availability across the U.S., globally, we're seeing it as well. And specifically here in, in Wisconsin, where most of our facilities are located, you know, we've had four years of unemployment at or below 3% which means we have shortage of labor to be able to continue the supply chain and continue that economic growth. So that's really been at its core. We feel it from local situations, global situations. What that's done is meant that, and this is where I think COVID really amplified it. You knew you were always running pretty tight, but then you have COVID instances, which takes a number of people out of the business for a period of time. And that puts extra further strain. So by us having the additional facilities, now up to six facilities, what it will do in the future is give us the opportunity to think about how we use that as a network to really try to balance the demand and make sure that if we do have a situation where we're either short labor or short materials, that we can move things around and continue to meet those customer needs. And you mentioned the fact that it was something that's complementary to what Ornua Ingredients already has. How does that play out? Do you look for companies that have that complementarity? Yeah, when we went through the process of evaluating potential acquisitions, we did look at a number of organizations and Whitehall fit the bill at its core. It brought to us a few things. One was additional capabilities. So for us, we tended to focus more on standard of identity processed cheeses, where Whitehall tended to focus more on non-standard of identity processed cheeses and also brings with it a plant-based option. So what that means is that we now have a really broad product portfolio in terms of meeting the customer needs. 
it also brought with it available capacities. So as I said, well, we're, we're growing the business incredibly quickly. And having that additional capacity means that we can deliver on the pipeline of products that we've already been developing as well as continue to grow. And then the third element for us was you know, this is a significant acquisition. As I said, it doubles our business. So what we liked about Whitehall in that space was that operationally it was fairly similar to us. So that meant that we could look to integrate it with a good understanding of how the business needs to operate and work. And that allows us to focus more time on the people side of integration, the overall business uh, design integration. But at its core, we kind of knew how to operate the business. So that was the three criteria that we had laid out in terms of you know capacity, capability, and close enough to home operationally. Whitehall fit the bill, and that's why we chose them. And what kind of markets does the company operate in there, and, and will you be changing or expanding yeah. that? I mean, does it have the capacity for expansion there? Yeah, there is capacity for expansion. The current or newer business really focused on in what we call industrial, so that's selling to brand manufacturers for them to use in their products. We also had a business in the food service industry. Whitehall brings both inter, uh, the industrial space as well as the food service space. They also have some products that go into retail. So similar to ours, but again, complimentary that they have some product lines that better suit themselves for a, a retail presence. You know, We'll continue to look at that strategically and make sure that we can find those opportunities where we can grow sustainably across the different platforms. It's interesting what you were saying before about COVID and all of the different stresses and strains that there have been on the chain. You tend to think of acquisitions as just being what the company sells, but I guess it's quite a bit more than that now because of the logistics and because of geographies. Has that affected your strategy in North America? Yeah, to a degree. And I think it probably goes back to you know why we chose Whitehall as the right uh, acquisition. While they were close to us from a business sense and they met all the business targets, they also fit quite well with us from a cultural standpoint. So three of the four plants are in Wisconsin where we've got, uh, you know, one of our plants is in Wisconsin. The other one is, you know, just across the border into Minnesota. So this is a group of people and a business that come with it that really fit well culturally. We understand each other. We have a similar ethos. We have an appreciation for dairy and dairy farmers. So that really makes the two businesses coming together. It, it fits quite well, and we didn't really have those cultural elements. So being close to home definitely has its advantages. What are your plans for Whitehall, and does that mean any um, changes in personnel? Yeah, I mean, our plans going forward, as I said, this is all about growth. So we're going to continue to operate the facilities. We're going to continue to try to push additional volume and growth through those facilities, and that means that we're going to need the people and the talent to be able to achieve that. So at the moment, it's continued to do the good work that both teams are doing as we build the combined future. We'll do that collaboratively to bring both businesses along. But this is absolutely about growth. And that means we're going to need the assets, the people, the sites. We're going to need all of that to achieve that aspiration. And as you also said earlier, the employment rate has, has gone up. So it's uh, even more difficult than it ever was to get people. It is. And I think that's where, you know, the Ornua ethos, the Ornua character, our values, it matters. This is an employee's market. They have choices. So it's important for us to make sure that we're supporting and developing our people and that we're creating a place where people are proud to work and enjoy working and we become that employer of choice. We have to compete to make sure that we're capturing the best talent. And I think Ornua does a, a really good job of thinking about the people side of the business as well as the numeric side of the business. 
it's a bit early to say because it's only just happened, but will it maintain its name or will it become a part of Onua name as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, as an organization, it will become a part of Ornua and will have a corporate and structure of being Ornua. Underneath that, though, there are some brands that they own and hold and will continue to use those brands where appropriate. Time and money has been spent to develop those brands, so we'll leverage those. But the corporate entity will be Ornua. And how big is the cheese ingredients market for Ornua? Yeah, it's uh, it's quite sizable. And I'd say it's, it's difficult to scale. The reason I say that is it's it's fluid. So if you look at some customers who may be choosing to use a, a natural block cheese at the moment, as we work with them and talk about what we can do in terms of innovation and functionality, they can migrate from a natural into our space of, of SOI or, or non-SOI cheeses. What I would say is, is that in the markets that we play, there's still solid growth between 2 to 5%, depending upon the segment. We're still seeing solid growth in those sectors, and Ornua is outpacing that growth. So it's the approach that we take with working with our customers that's allowed us to grow faster than the marketplace. And it really comes down to innovation. That term innovation gets used a lot and and kind of thrown around a little bit, but we think about it quite simply. If we can help you solve a problem or if we can help you bring an idea to life, that's innovative to you. And that's the innovation that we focus on is that really practical innovation about helping brands meet their the architecture of the brand what they're trying what their brand image is all about and what their consumer is looking for what we do is work closely with those brand manufacturers to help them deliver the products that will meet their consumer needs and when that happens we all win the consumer votes with their dollar and everybody wins through that supply chain and it must be good as well to be in a position where you now have new capacities and new capabilities and as you already mentioned plant-based which is really going through the roof Yeah, it's incredibly exciting when we look at the span and scope of the types of cheeses we can produce now uh, and the expertise around those. That gives us great excitement. We look at the format of the products that we can deliver. So whether that be in a slice or an individually wrapped slice, a bulk, a diced shred, we talked about tight labor. We feel this not just in our industry, but really across most industries. So what we get from a lot of our customers, especially in the food service industry, is can I get a product that is ready to use? So, you know, if you went back in time, you know, between two and five o'clock, you might have had servers on the clock who there wasn't customers. So they were back doing a bit of prep. The people aren't available and they become too costly. So you're better off now just to buy a bag of that shred. So the additional product format capabilities that comes with this business also allows us to not only meet the functional capability of the product, but delivering it in a format that works for the customer as well. And I guess it also helps that food service is starting to rebound in the U.S. as well. It is, yeah. And uh, I would say it came off you know, real strong in Q2. I think we all had uh, pretty high hopes that we had beaten this thing and we were ready to roll out for a big summer. Delta variant came along and uh, put a bit of a, a rain cloud over the top of that and slowed things down a little bit. But we're still seeing that slowly continued growth in the redevelopment of food service. It looks and feels a little bit different in terms of what menu offerings are. And it just it starts to feel a little bit different. But it's still an avenue where we're starting to see that rebalancing between food service and retail that had swung pretty heavily to retail in 2020. We're starting to see that start to rebalance. If we pull back from this, you know, why did we do this and why was this the right strategic fit for, for ingredients in North America in our new uh, 
you know, for us, we truly believe that the combined businesses are going to make a, a unique set of capabilities, and it's the foundation for us to really build something special. We absolutely believe that in our corner of the cheese industry, there's really nobody that can really rival what we do. And that's a really exciting place to be when you look to the future that you're you're creating something that's really unique and special. I think, you know, we're quite energized by that. You know, talking to the Whitehall team, they're quite energized by that. This is really an absolute positive for both businesses and really sets us up to do something quite special. Now it's to a product that isn't new, but Bob's, the Australian company, is launching into the U.S. market. And to tell us more is Dennis Lynn, chairman of Bob's, who can tell us first about the company. So, uh, well, Jim, thanks very much for uh, the opportunity to uh, um, have a chat about uh, Bob's Australia and uh, the new product launch in the U.S. under the brand of Aussie Bob's. So Bob's Australia is a company that was founded in 2006 by a mother, Christy Carr, who today remains the chief executive and the managing director of our company. Christy founded the business on her kitchen bench because she wanted to make the most clean organic baby food for her child at the time. She now has uh, three children, all very happy, all very healthy, just like the company. And uh, I guess since 2006, Bob's has really become a specialty infant and toddler nutrition company based out of uh, Australia in the northern beaches of uh, Sydney. We effectively provide comprehensive product range for the first 1,000 days of a child's nutrition. But uh, in addition, we are the largest specialist goat milk producer also in Australia and New Zealand. And that's why for us, our hero product, if you like, is um, goat milk infant formula under the brand of Bubs. And um, today we have a wonderful canning facility that is uh, wholly owned by us to ensure that um, everything is of the best quality. We buy milk directly from the farmers, and that's also very dear to us. And the company is uh, now listed on the Australian Securities Exchange and with a market valuation of um, circa 350 million Australian dollars. Where are the products sold? Uh, is it just, obviously not just in Australia? No, Jim, that's right. So uh, for a mother in Australia, it's very, very easy and accessible to be able to find the Bob's products. So um, we have 40 products under our Bob's range, which is quite good. So uh, we have the baby pouch food, we have cereals, we have rusks, the teething rusks for kids as they're teething. We have two types of infant formula, being the goat milk infant formula, and also our organic grass-fed infant formula, which is uh, based on cow milk, as well as uh, quite a few other products. You can find them in basically every grocery store because uh, we are certainly the fastest growing in our category in Australia. And um, we are, I would say, very, very little compared to the Nestle of this world, but uh, we're certainly gaining scale quite quickly. In addition to Australia, we also export naturally to China where there is a very big demand for our uh, clean and green and um, genuine products with provenance. We also export to other parts of Asia, being Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, Korea, also Japan. We have recently just commenced export to East Africa, as well as um, the Pacific Islands, mainly Fiji. And obviously, sorry, I must mention New Zealand as well, which is not another state of Australia, but another country. (laughs) 
It's funny that you should mention rusks there. I grew up with rusks in the UK, but then when I moved to North America, it was something that I didn't seem to know anything about, although maybe that was just the stores that I was going to. Who knows? We were the first ones to actually develop in Australia a lactose-free rusk, and we've created different flavors, and it's really gained a lot of popularity. One thing that we always do in developing products, we don't just basically sit in a lab and uh, think about what products we would actually create next. Because of our grounding as a brand and what's founded by a mother who is still very much involved in the business, we're very, very interested in understanding what consumers want. So every product we develop is really based on, I wouldn't even go as far as sort of saying, oh, you know, it's not market research and looking at the total addressable market and going, well, that one is growing better than the other and therefore we should actually go into that. There's naturally an element of it because we're running a business, but uh, what's most important to us is that um, we are producing and creating what our consumers truly want. And could you tell me a little bit about the manufacturing process? Yeah, so Jim, uh, in terms of our uh, manufacturing process, because we, I mentioned before that uh, we buy milk directly from the farmers, and uh, you'll hear that um, the term vertical integration a lot in sort of understanding bubs as a business. So vertical integration is the vertical integration of the upstream supply chain, whereby um, we are actually involved from the get-go, from the farm gate, which is, um, you know, not always the case, particularly for uh, infant formula producers. Certainly the boutique infant formula producers would tend to be purchasing powder directly from manufacturers of powder. And then from there, they'll then go and do a blend to then sort of create the infant formula. In order for them to create a finished product, it involves um, purchasing wholemeal powder and then uh, blending and then drying it again. So uh, it's usually a two-step process. Whereas for us, we buy milk directly from the farmers. We deliver it to our partner spray dryer facility. And uh, at that facility, we will introduce the underlying ingredients that can actually be put through the uh, the dryer together. So uh, it is only dried once. We call it a, a one-step process. And at the end of that, we will then introduce ingredients that couldn't have been sort of in the dryer. If you were to actually open, I guess, our product and uh, have it side by side with other products that have been through sort of a two-step manufacturing process, you will taste and understand the difference. I was sort of using this analogy before and um, it kind of works, so I might try it here. It's similar to um, you don't want to be microwaving your food twice. It's a necessary process and we're very transparent about the processes we have to go through to uh, provide the products for the consumers. And um, that's why for us, we want to actually, you know, if you like, minimize that process so we could actually lock in as much um, freshness and nutrition for the infant and toddler. And speaking of what consumers want, you're heading into the US with Aussie Bobs. What's the, can you tell me about that? Yeah, certainly we are, Jim, and it's a, um, I think it's wonderful, which is partly why I'm actually here in the US to work with the team that uh, we are starting to put together to really focus on our US launch, but basically over the next six to 12 months. So uh, we are launching two products initially, both uh, toddler formula. One is uh, our hero product of uh, goat, and uh, that milk is uh, one that we buy from the farmers and uh, one that we process all the way through to our own facility. So uh, a product that we're very, very proud of. I was there together with Christy Carr, the founder, every step of the way, 
in uh, going out to the farm, making sure that we're actually choosing the right genetics, making sure that we've got the right milk stability, all the way through to, um, I guess, working through the formulation and making sure that we have the best ingredients in our formulation. The other one is um, organic grass-fed, and that's a cow-based topler formula. Thankfully, in Australia, where we actually have uh, dairy cows, it doesn't snow. And therefore, uh, our uh, grass-fed is 365 days grass-fed. I'm not sure whether you've you know, come across this concept, but uh, in Europe, grass-fed you know, comes with a caveat that uh, it's 185 days grass-fed or uh, 180 days grass-fed rather than 365. So uh, I just want to sort of call that out because that's quite relevant. We were told quite early on that um, bubs in the United States means the equivalent of mate, in Australia, whereas uh, the obviously the name Bubs in Australia refers to, you know, the colloquial term of babies. So uh, if we were to see a, a baby for the first time, we go, oh, that's a beautiful Bub. That's how Bubs started. And that's why, I guess, when we sort of came to uh, the United States, we wanted to make sure that it translated properly. And that's why we put Aussie in front of it. And that's why, you know, you're sort of seeing the brand of uh, Aussie Bubs. But uh, other than that, everything is 100% aligned to, um, I guess, the underlying philosophies of our brand. And um, very excited to be in the US. The US is a very, very large market. But uh, I guess the reason we wanted to come here is not because it's a big market. There are many big markets around the world. We wanted to come to the US because we understand and we have heard the consumers demanding a very clean product. That's a really, I guess, important element for us in making our decision to actually come to um, launch in the United States. And there's obviously lots of products on the shelves. How does yours differ from the rest? Yeah, Jim, look, it's a, it's a very um, good point. Look, I think um, as a CPG or FMCG company, everyone is uh, very good. And uh, many companies, especially in that particular category, have, uh, I would say, stronger balance sheet than us. And therefore, they're able to actually put forward, you know, very strong marketing claims and so forth. And, but, you know, we're very used to actually competing in that category. If the question is, what is your key differentiator? I sort of mentioned, I guess, our underlying DNA has always been making sure that we are providing the best for the mothers, you know, and therefore their kids. And this is the difficult thing, right? In our category, we're providing to consumers that can only, I guess, give you feedback in the most direct way either comes out this side or it comes out on the other side or they're actually happy <laughs> but uh, they don't usually talk to you and therefore quality becomes incredibly important it's our absolute belief that uh, clean will uh, create quality clean in terms of uh, the underlying ingredients so we were very very proud that uh, both of our products have won um, the clean label purity project award the clean label essentially means our products have um, very, very little chemical residue or heavy metal or toxins in our products. And uh, you will see every single one of our product with that particular, I guess, um, clean label mark that will actually provide um, mothers with the underlying safety and sense of security that um, they are providing the cleanest products to their kids. And um, at present, as far as I'm aware, we will be the only products coming out with that label. And I guess having it on the shelves is one thing, and but communicating with parents is another. How are you going to be communicating all of those positives to them? 
Yeah, Jim, look, absolutely. You know, certainly we are um, looking to engage in, uh, I guess, uh, different campaigns and different um, discussions with different networks that will actually allow the word to spread. What we have found in every market is um, if your product is good, there'll be the multiplier effect of people wanting to tell your story is a lot quicker and a lot bigger. So what we're really intending to do is, um, you know, we are certainly invested. I am the chair of the board and uh, I am sitting here in the US because uh, this project is very important to us. And uh, what we are, I guess, looking to do in the coming weeks is to really speak to the mothers locally, speak to, I guess, uh, different um, people from within the industry, such as pediatricians and uh, so forth, to actually make sure that uh, we are thinking right and that uh, our product is uh, as good as we think they are relative to others. And um, we will always continue to innovate and improve. And that's always been in our uh, underlying DNA. You know, we never actually say the first product is going to be the final and the best, but uh, we think we've done all right over the last 15 years. To have taken, I guess, um, market share from some of the biggest companies and uh, to have gone to, um, I guess, China, which is another very competitive country, and uh, have taken, I guess, a meaningful share, I think means we understand how to speak to consumers. And I think that, for me, is the key. You know, we don't just, um, uh, we're not a big company, so uh, uh, I have no intention of just throwing money at consumers and, and basically convincing them that we are the best product. I want our products to tell the story. And wh- where is it going to be available in the US initially? We are initially launching just online on Amazon and Walmart.com. Amazon is now live and Walmart.com is uh, very imminent in a matter of days. I think over the next uh, six months, you will start to find them in quite a lot of, um, I guess, brick and mortar stores. So uh, we're currently in discussions with uh, different retailers. I'm confident that uh, before Christmas, you'll probably start to see um, our products on shelves, most likely firstly in California. Could you tell me how digitization is affecting the brand? Yeah, no, for sure, Jim. I mean, I think in terms of digitization, I will, um, you know, I have to refer to the pandemic. And I think, um, and I'll use Korea as an example. With Korea, 80% of the population is based in the capital city of Seoul. And during the pandemic period alone in the last two years, the overall purchase of infant formula has shifted from 50% online to circa 80% online. That's a move of nearly a quarter of the entire addressable market onto the digital platform. So the move is really, really quick. And um, certainly in Australia and also um, in China or looking at uh, from Australia to China, um, the pathway, we've seen digitization and e-commerce to have been a really, really big influence on uh, how mothers choose to purchase either as their first purchase when they are selecting the product or when they are subsequently making repeat purchases. And I guess that's why for us in the US, we've uh, decided to launch digital in the first place. Digital really allows us to have a better understanding of the underlying data. There are many brick and mortar stores that now also do fantastic job in data analysis, but um, with e-commerce and digitization, it is much more immediate and quick. So for us, to be able to launch on the likes of um, Amazon and Walmart means we'll be able to actually get some data metrics that will allow us to actually understand 
where we should go next and how we should go next. So uh, it's very relevant, you know, certainly not just for us, but um, obviously also for many other companies in our category. You mentioned the pandemic there. Has that changed things a lot? And is it changing again now as people emerge from various lockdowns? Or do you think some of the things like the online will carry over? Yeah, Jim, look, uh, it was pretty tough in Australia. Australia pursued the uh, elimination strategy. So as a result, there were many lockdowns. Thankfully, both Sydney and Melbourne are now out of lockdown and uh, there's uh, a fair bit of freedom. But um, look, um, for sure, you know, um, uh, the pandemic created a lot of challenges, including for our company. We experienced the initial pantry stocking and then ultimately just the volatilities of the supply chain. They've all impacted our business quite heavily. Thankfully for us, we were able to weather that storm. Uh, certainly the purchase behaviours have changed, some temporary and some forever. So certainly the concept of actually being able to go online is um, becoming more and more prevalent, especially for, I guess, the products that are in the centre of the aisle versus uh, around the parameters. And that's why for us, online purchase is and continues to be quite relevant. Otherwise, you know, fingers crossed, supply chain aside, people's lives are going back to normal. And I'm not saying that from a business perspective. It's just, um, you know, I think for all of us, including you probably, you know, you will have had uh, families and friends that have been through quite a lot of challenges that have been posed by COVID. You're moving into the US now. Is that the end of expansion or are there other markets you're looking to? Well, infant formula is quite a highly regulated uh, industry. When we consider new product development, and when we are considering a market, we can never really be doing, I guess, um, the flash in the pan kind of uh, new product launch. We need to be looking at a country with a very sustainable uh, set of lengths. We looked at the US probably coming up to uh, well over 12 months ago in deciding that we wanted to invest in the R&D to be able to actually come and launch in the US. In terms of sort of other markets, I can certainly say we have quite a few still on our radar. It's not so much the ambition, it's more, I guess, um, the desire to want to actually convey the goodness of our products to as many people as possible. Now, between Asia and uh, the US and also our home market in Australia, we're probably kept quite busy. But, um, you know, I still harbour the dream of one day being able to walk into one of your good UK stores and being able to see our products on shelf one day. And now it's over to Ireland for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. And hopefully, because we've just had Halloween, it's not scary news. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Jim. Well, since we last spoke, um, or when we last spoke, we were looking at uh, very strong increases in a lot of commodity markets over the last, uh, you know, six to six to eight weeks. And, you know, it, while it continued over the last uh, couple of weeks, it did start to stabilize towards the back end of last week and, and early this week. And, um, you know, it looked like we may have been taking a bit of a pause at these higher prices. But then we had a, a GDT global dairy trade auction uh, just yesterday, and that again proved really strong um, and much stronger than expected, where the overall index was, was up about 4.3%. And we did on the platform, we saw higher prices pretty much across the board. Um, Home of powder was up 2.7%. Skim was up uh, very aggressive, 6.6%. 
butter was up 4.7 percent and you know all and all you know largely higher than expected so you know we were looking at the auction and while it was going on we could see that the market was going to be higher in general our presumption was that it was probably led by china returning and and starting to buy quite aggressively on the platform but but actually when we looked at the data after the event it looked like china were not um you know very heavy buyers in the event uh, at all and it was actually uh, more basically everybody else or every other region like southeast asia was was quite aggressive middle east and north africa um oceania all all buying a good percentage more than they normally would at this time of year so that's an interesting one it does look like demand out there on the big importers uh, is good china still a few question marks over the demand side in that part of the world but everybody else is at the moment at least picking up the slack One of the other concerns, of course, and and the reason why we've had such a march higher in prices is on weaker than expected milk collections. And, you know, looking at the numbers that continue to come out, they're they're continuing to look concerning. Um, We haven't yet got our full September numbers out from Europe, but, you know, best estimates right now look like Germany is going to be down about two and a half percent. France is going to be down probably somewhere around 2.2 percent, something like that. That's much weaker than a, than we were originally expecting, um, probably caused by, you know, on-farm costs and challenges increasing um, quite rapidly over the uh, over the back end of the summer. And, uh, you know, in, in general, there's just some concerns that we're, it's going to take a while to correct that. We look in other parts of the world in terms of milk collections. For September, we see that New Zealand collections were also weaker than expected, down 4.3% on the previous year. So in general, there's there's still a lot of concerns uh, out there in terms of milk collections. You know, the higher commodity prices that we're seeing today have not necessarily passed through yet to the milk checks. So farmers aren't getting compensated for their higher costs yet. So so that's why, in the short term at least, there's still a concern that farmers won't produce uh, significant amounts. However, when we get into next year, we should, uh, particularly in Europe, should start seeing uh, much stronger milk prices, which should start to make farmer margins quite profitable. So we would expect to see an uptick in milk collections um, towards uh, you know Q2 or the middle of the of next year. But in the meantime, it, it still looks tight, and uh, and prices have been have been holding up very well as a result of that. Thanks, Charlie. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another podcast. Next week is already taking shape and the interviews are coming in thick and fast which should keep us going through most of November. There's often a little bit of a lull, especially in the US around Thanksgiving and Black Friday, but I think we'll be okay. So I'd better go now and get back to planning for the webinar, which I hope you will join us for next week on November the 9th, when the clocks will have been changed back in the US, just to confuse me a little less. And so I hope whatever time zone you are in, even if it's one of the confusing ones with the half-hour time differences, that you will join us again next week. Stay safe, take care, and, as always, thanks for listening.